0: listeners and welcome back to recovery talk a podcast from the peer recovery center of excellence i'm your host Shannon Roberts each month we'll be talking with an expert in the field discussing substance use challenges resources to assist individuals with a substance use challenge and or their families and best practices for the delivery of peer recovery support services this month we're bringing you six new episodes in late 2022 Tim Sobbers, who leads our workforce development team, hosted a six-month skill development series for peer recovery support specialists. The training series provided recurring opportunities for peer recovery support specialists from across the country to build foundational skills that are necessary for effective peer recovery service provision. This series was so well attended and in demand that we also offered it in early 2023, in this podcast series, Tim sits down to have a conversation with each facilitator to have a deeper discussion with them about their presentation and what it means for the field. In this fourth episode of the series, Tim spoke with Shandell Friedman about exploring multiple pathways to recovery. Shandelle is a certified peer recovery specialist with two years of experience working in the field. Working with members of her local Sober Squad chapter, she developed a desire to help others navigate the challenges faced by those recovering from substance use challenges. She now works as an alcohol and drug counselor for her organization and finds peer support to be a vital part of the recovery process. Without further ado, let's get talking.
1: Cool. Um, well, welcome back, everybody. I am really excited to be speaking with uh, Shandell Friedman today. Shandell, I'm so um, happy to have you here with me.
2: Yeah, thank you for having me.
1: Yeah. Um, so I wanted to jump right into things and, uh, actually I'm going to start kind of by asking you, um, a question that I didn't really ask anybody else. And, the the reasoning is because this topic is specifically about multiple pathways to recovery. I wanted to make sure that everybody kind of has the context of where we're coming from, um, mm-hmm. as individuals and as facilitators. So I'm wondering if you wouldn't mind sharing a little bit about, um, your own recovery pathway and your own recovery experiences.
2: Yeah, Sure. So I think in order to answer this this question, I kind of have to give a little bit of a background on, you know, where my addiction was. My addiction t- took me to a place where I was homeless. I didn't have any relationships with anybody that had anything to do with anything besides using. I was completely like lost within my own mind and my own spirit. And so mm-hmm. I received a referral from drug court when I was in jail And drug court pretty much said, like, you need to go to treatment and start doing 12-step meetings. And, you know, I had never heard of any other pathway. So I was like, okay, this is recovery. I'm I'm okay with that. And so um, being an Indigenous person, I wanted to go to a culturally specific program. And that's what I did. I went to a treatment called Muscausian and um, really learned about spirituality and my culture. Um, But I also learned about the 12 steps and going to meetings. And so my pathway to recovery is um, complete abstinence. My pathway is 12 steps. Um, But, you know, through the work that I have done with peer support, I've come to realize that there are more pathways to recovery. And so Part of my current pathway is um, accepting and supporting other people in their pathways too, which is pretty cool.
1: Yeah, I really appreciate that, Shandell. And kind of the reason I asked is because I know, you know, we we talked about what we were going to be talking about today. And I know that sometimes when we go into dialogue about multiple pathways to recovery and holding space for others, um, there can be some pushback as we saw in some of your sessions right some people really Mm -hmm. feeling like oh what you're saying is kind of against my my pathway or i don't like how this is being framed and so Mm -hmm. i just wanted to make sure that people have some context that we have even in this space multiple pathways represented uh because i'm someone who practices moderation um but that we are you know trying to have a dialogue where where all of these viewpoints are being respected right absolutely so I'm wondering, um, you know, of course, with your own recovery pathway in mind being, uh, being and mine being being twelve step and and being rooted in some indigenous practices and and, and culture, um, would you uh, talk a little bit about how you were able to grow into understanding multiple pathways to recovery?
2: Yeah, sure. Uh, when I got to a year of recovery, I started working in a treatment center in the same treatment center where I went to treatment actually, mm-hmm. which is pretty cool too. But. Um, And so I started to see people not wanting to do 12-step recovery, and were more focused on wanting to do um, culture or wanting to do physical fitness. And at first, I was kind of like, that's not recovery. Like, you need to go to meetings, you need to get a sponsor, do the steps. But through seeing people be successful in um, going to college or being a part of their family or doing other pathways, I started to trust a little bit more that, like, okay, this is a viable way to recover, and even not wanting to be in recovery, like it's it's okay. Um, and so, you know, the work that I that I did in the very beginning was like hard for me to see it as as a different path. Um, but slowly over time, I started to accept that, and and even in the work that I do within my own twelve steps, like accepting and having compassion for other people is something that I've learned too.
1: Yeah. So sort of seeing it in, in practice, right. Seeing other people make the decision to pursue recovery through different lanes and seeing them be successful at that and find meaning in that kind of helped to open your eyes.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. And I think you're kind of talking about something that we hear uh, very commonly, right. In the peer workforce is that, um, you know, people people will will say that they really believe in multiple pathways to recovery. And that's why I wanted this to be a topic when I was designing this series. But because I heard so frequently from people being like, yeah, I got this one in the bag. I already know what this means. And then you push a little bit and, and we realize that people maybe uh, have a lot of room to grow in their understandings um, of what multiple pathways is. And that's kind of what I'm interested to hear your thoughts more on um, is this idea of safeguarding multiple pathways to recovery from becoming multiple pathways to sobriety or multiple pathways Mm -hmm. to clinical treatment. Um, Mm -hmm. What do you think?
2: I think the biggest thing that that would help that is recognizing that when we work with individuals, it's really about their goals. So like, what is their main goal for life? Do they want to just become a part of their family? How do they define recovery for themselves? It's self-defined. So if if so and so wants to um, be a member of their family, well, what can we do to support that? And um, I think it's really important to think about, like, what are what are your motivations for working with individuals, and how can you let go of your agenda? Um, I think back to my own experience, even going through clinical treatment the best counselors that impacted me the most were the ones who asked me questions about myself rather than telling me about myself.
1: Hmm. Yeah, that's such a good point, Chandel. Like how do we decenter ourselves in the provision of peer support services? And I love what you said about letting go of our own agendas, um, because I do think that that's critical to maintaining the integrity of multiple pathways to recovery. Um, Mm -hmm. Why do you think that people struggle with that so much?
2: I think that people struggle with it because they, they have fought so hard to be in their specific, you know, pathway. Um, this is what recovery is. This is how I define it. And um, I think it's just it's just hard to see it from a different angle sometimes.
1: Yeah, that really personal attachment of like, I fought for this. I worked for it. This is how I define recovery, which has such you know deep personal roots of how people make meaning of themselves. That Mm to see it presented as a different way can feel particularly challenging sometimes. Mm -hmm. But jumping back to uh, something that you said about uh, people maybe choosing not to be in recovery, I'm really interested to hear your thoughts too about kind of that idea of people saying like, I actually don't, I don't care to focus on recovery right now. And people who choose to use different language, like who are like, I'm not in recovery, I'm just a person who's navigating the world, that that recovery language we're really seeing kind of pushed on right now um, in peer support. And I'm really interested to hear kind of what you think about those things.
2: I think if we look at it from the perspective of helping somebody find wellness, like how can they better their lives in general? We can kind of stay away from um, chasing people off because we are imposing our recovery language on them. And that's really what peer support is all about—is helping people work on their goals. So um, that's the biggest thing I think for me is like thinking about it in terms of wellness.
1: Yeah, what would it look like for this person to have a life of meaning and value, or to be able to say that they they feel well, regardless of whether that means continuing to use substances or to experience "quote unquote" mental health symptoms? Um, right. What What would it look like to support that person in doing that? And to your point earlier. What it looked like for me to get out of the way uh, and just support them in doing that instead of directing them and doing it. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, when you were talking about your own recovery pathway, you talked about uh, being an indigenous woman and wanting to engage in uh, services that were culturally oriented. And something that I think is important mentioning in this context of multiple pathways as well is who has access to clinical treatment and who doesn't. And you know, a lot of the data that we look at shows that. The majority of folks actually don't have access to clinical treatment, whether that's because of a lack of service providers, a lack of insurance coverage, um, a lack of affordable options. But most people actually don't have access to clinical treatment, even if it is something they wanted, um, they can't go to it. Um, And this is especially true for people from historically marginalized communities. So I'm really interested to hear your thoughts on, like, how do we as a workforce, the peer recovery support specialist workforce, better support community and culturally relevant recovery that's maybe divorce from clinical, uh, clinical modalities?
2: Yeah. So I think what is, is really important is advocacy, you know, um, finding, finding what's needed out there in the field per se, um, and fighting to have things that are missing being added to the field. Peer support part of what we do is a resource broker, right? So we're helping to find resources in the community. And I think a lot can be brought together just by us helping to find some of these resources. Um, Another thing too, that I was thinking about is um, cultural competence is a super, super big part of my own discovery. And You know, like educating ourselves on different cultures is really important. And also to recognize that just because somebody belongs to a culture does not mean that that's how they identify. So, again, it goes back to asking the the individual we're working with, how do they identify? So, like, what, what is culturally appropriate for you? And how can I support you in finding the services that you are looking for?
1: yeah staying out of that kind of judgment making and assumption um space i know for myself um as a latino person i'm also adopted and so people will see me and assume that i can speak spanish or that i know you know what it was like to grow up in the latino community um and that's not true and that so I, i will still claim that identity of latino but my experience is very different from kind of the majority of the homogenous group and so what i want for services looks very different than Somebody who was raised actually in the culture. Mm-hmm. Um, but kind of on that point, Chandel, I'm interested to hear from you. Like, something that I hear regularly from people is that they're like, I don't know what to do or how to get started. You know, I'm not Indigenous, so I don't know how to support somebody else who is Indigenous. I'm not queer, so I don't know how to support other queer folks. I don't know the right thing to say. I don't know the right resource to connect them to. How do you strike the right balance of? Wanting to be able to offer resources that are culturally appropriate without overstepping into, I know what's best for you, or I know what people like you want or need.
2: Right. And certainly some of the the cultural spaces, um, people who are outsiders aren't exactly welcomed. So um, that's something that's really tricky to figure out, too. Um, I I think about this, and I think that, you know, networking is really important for us, too. Um, because if we have somebody who identifies completely different than we do, we can go to somebody, maybe another peer and ask them, well, do you know any resources in this area? I think that's a pretty big piece of this puzzle with, with cultural stuff, networking.
1: Yeah. And as we talk about kind of expanded recovery pathways and creating access to services, um, and supports that will meet people's needs, um, you know, you talked about advocacy earlier. How do you know when you're advocating for what the community actually wants? Um, And to kind of go off on a little tangent here, something I hear so regularly is that like, we need more like queer clinicians or more like black clinicians or more indigenous clinicians. That is what was really going to solve all these problems. And then you go to speak to those communities and they're like, I actually don't want those things. I want what's already working in my community to be recognized but the loudest voices are advocating for an expansion of services in a way the community doesn't actually want. Um, so I'm curious, like as a workforce, what are your thoughts about how do we make sure that what we're doing and advocating for is actually in line with what the communities that we're serving say that they actually want?
2: I think it's important for, um, for us to ask people what it is they're looking for. Right. And, um, a lot of times people do like surveys I think that could be something that would be helpful in terms of advocating. Like, what is what is a need that you see in the community? And ask a variety of people to answer these surveys. Um, and then ask how, how the change has impacted them, too.
1: Yeah, for sure. Uh, so really hearing from the community about what they're interested in. Um, and with that, some of these, uh, some, some communities you know, make meaning of lived experiences very differently than the existing system or use substances in different ways that are associated with more cultural practices or um, something that I talk a lot about is how so much of queer community is centered on nightlife, which uh, typically involves a lot of substances. Not all queer community is centered on nightlife, but a lot of it is. When we're saying that you have to be abstinent, um, you know, some that you're losing your connection to your community or you're losing your connection to cultural practices. How do we keep all that stuff in mind when we're providing services and, and how can we push the boundaries of understanding multiple pathways kind of with these cultural pieces in mind?
2: That's a good question. So, um, I think about recovery community organizations like in my area. Um, they they try really hard to continue that kind of community in a recovery space. And so like for your example of the queer community having nightlife like how can we have an event that would support people coming together in a positive way versus what we would see as a negative way with using? Or how can we um, support, moderation management or whatever pathway it is that we're looking to access, um, just making it be a more positive experience.
1: Yeah. So so, sort of, sort of creating those spaces where the community can still gather. Um, Yeah. And I think also like kind of pushing on this idea that, that, um, you know, using even is bad um, if that's what the people who are using are choosing to do. Um, I think we, we as a workforce can kind of look at that. I've been in conversation lately with people about this idea that people who are using substances are suffering and in, are inherently suffering or inherently in pain just because they're using mm-hmm. substances and kind of having dialogue about like, well, we don't get to make that assumption. With that in mind, right? So with these uh, quote unquote alternative recovery pathways, I hate that phrase, alternative recovery pathway, mm-hmm. because it makes it seem like abstinence is the correct recovery pathway um, but with these, you know, quote unquote alternative recovery pathways in mind, like moderation management, like individual recovery, how do we build the skills that are needed to support folks who are making a decision to participate in moderation or individual recovery or harm reduction? Um, how do we, how, how do you, how can we support them best?
2: Well, first of all, I want to say that I, it, it really grinds my gears that, um, that people see harm reduction as a pathway. Like, I don't like that it's called harm reduction, but I think, you know, educating yourself professionally about different pathways, first of all, is like super important. Um, But also I think just recognizing that like things, things look different for different people. And as I mentioned earlier, um, it's all about goals, right? So what is that person's goal for recovery or whatever they call recovery? Um, certainly with harm reduction or with moderation management, they may not use the language of recovery, but what, what is their goals? And to, to stick with that kind of mindset rather than, than looking at it of like, either you're using or you're not, you're good or you're bad, it, it's really, it's, it's sticky and it's, it's not necessarily supportive to those who are m- trying to do moderation management.
1: Yeah. So challenging some of these ideas that we've heard of, like, like you said, the use equals bad, uh, non-use equals good all the time. Right. Cause we know it's not that black and white. Um, but I want to jump back to what you said actually early about harm reduction. I'm really interested to hear more about, um, kind of disliking that phrasing
2: yeah, i I don't like that it's called harm reduction. I think a lot of people lump together like medication assisted treatment and moderation management, and they call it harm reduction. and I think they see it from a standpoint of they're still harming themselves mm. well if if you are taking medication to better your life and you feel like you're you're doing, good for yourself i don't see how that's harm yeah
1: yeah i, I love that i had I've, I've never considered it really like that before but yeah this idea that of uh, like harm is still occurring even though that may not necessarily be true um mm-hmm. right because theoretically if you're doing something safer or you're just making a more well-informed decision or to your point like you're doing what works for you so why are we still considering it harm it's Mm-hmm. Yeah, like that idea of are you suffering just because you're using substances? Like, no, you might not be experiencing any harm at all. You might actually be experiencing pleasure um, or joy or, you know, fun. Yeah, that's really interesting. So I'm interested, too, to hear kind of your ideas about accountability within the workforce. Um, this is something we talked about in other podcast sessions, kind of this mm-hmm fracturing of the workforce that we don't really have a unified voice we don't really have a unified understanding of our, our our values and principles and how they show up in action so how do we call in and or educate folks who believe that specific recovery pathways are better than others or more acceptable or you know quote unquote, correct
2: i think it all comes down to doing training and having um mentorship It's really important um, to learn and become more aware of different pathways than your own, especially seeing how that other people can benefit from these pathways. I think the thing that people focus on the most is how this pathway may be, quote, harming somebody Mm -hmm. um, because it's different from our own pathway. So learning how these different pathways can support individuals is a key point. Um, Another thing, too, like with the the, um, mentorship that I was talking about, um, a lot of what I learned early on, I learned through mentorship. I found somebody who worked at a recovery community organization. I work in a halfway house. So different atmosphere but I still, I learned a lot from mentorship. I would ask her all kinds of questions. Like, do you like ethical dilemmas, they will come up all the time and you don't know what to do. So um, having somebody t- that you can lean on and that you can ask these questions too. Um, but as a workforce in general, I think just educating and educating and educating about different types of pathways in the same kind of sense that, you know, other clinicians will train about um, different cultures for cultural competence.
1: Yeah. I'm curious too about, you know, how do we hold each other accountable compassionately? Um, Cause I think about how, you know, there's this kind of idea of like, we have to hold space for people to learn and grow at their own pace and, People, you know, develop their ideas over time and do X, Y, Z thing. But while that development is happening and all the education and training is happening, you're still out there potentially causing harm and turning people on from peer support services or, um, you know, not really living up to the principles and values. So I don't know. what What could we do to better, like, name when that is occurring and kind of say, like, hey, I appreciate that you are learning still and harm is still being caused here. Uh, while you're taking the time to learn, you know, what do you think that balance looks like?
2: I think it kind of just looks like, you know, kind of what you said in in the question, how you phrased it, you know, like um, it's a situation by situation kind of basis. For me, I am not working as a peer. I'm not directly working as a peer anymore, but I do work with peers who um, took my place and sometimes I will see them doing doing things that are, for instance, not supporting multiple pathways to recovery, and I will just have a conversation with them. And it's not like, it's not meant to be a conversation of you did wrong, but it's more of a conversation of let's learn how to look at this from a different perspective. So I think all of us in the workforce should pay special mind to helping each other learn.
1: Yeah. Sort of building community together. And that, you know, through community, we have the opportunity to mentor each other, to grow together, to share information and, and kind of be together as a workforce.
2: Mm-hmm. And I have seen some things on Facebook too, pretty interesting, like, um, just groups where people can ask questions their their peers in the field and and other peers will help them understand whatever question they're asking. It's a pretty cool thing to do too.
1: Yeah, that is cool. I've seen a couple of groups like that on Facebook too. I know I'm a part of a couple, and I'm always just like observing, being like, <laughs> who's saying what, <laughs> who's doing what, what's being asked. Uh, so I mentioned this earlier, but uh, oftentimes when we talk about stuff like this and how moderation management can exist and people can still use substances and and lead full productive lives. Um, Something that we hear from the workforce and that we saw come up in your sessions um, was kind of this idea of the more that we center harm reduction and and these quote-unquote alternative pathways, the more pushback that we get from folks who feel like you're decentering 12 step or you're saying that abstinence-based recovery isn't relevant anymore. what would you say to people who feel that way? uh, And how do we make this conversation? I don't want to say inclusive because I think that practicing abstinence-based recovery has gotten more than enough space, but we also don't want people to be leaving. Um, So, uh, you know, how do we navigate some of these conversations?
2: Hmm. What would I say? I think... It all comes back to, um, I kind of frame this, this thinking in a terms of like gender identity. I am not going to tell somebody who identifies as she, her, that they are, he, him. Right. And so I think about this in the recovery space too. Like if somebody identifies as wanting to continue to moderate their use. I'm not going to tell them that they have to identify as completely abstinent or not. Um, That that kind of puts it in a framework of respect for me. Like I, I respect people's pathway to recovery. I support whatever pathway they have. I'm not going to tell them how to identify. So when I'm having a conversation with somebody who doesn't exactly understand moderation management or continuing to use, they don't see it. And I use this, this analogy of gender, they kind of see it a little bit different. It shifts just a little bit.
1: And where do you think the line is? Cause this is something that I think about a lot and talk about a lot with uh, a variety of folks is like, when is it time to have that goodness of fit conversation of, you know, you really believe whether it's abstinence or moderation or whatever it might be, you really believe that this one pathway is the only pathway, but peer support is about multiple pathways to recovery. At what point do we say, maybe this isn't the workforce for you? Maybe this isn't the role for you? Uh, Where do you think those limits are?
2: I think really, I mean, if somebody is doing harm, and they're not learning from some sort of redirection, I don't think it should take very long. Uh, I think that supporting people's pathway to recovery is really important. And when we're not supporting somebody, like I don't even want to think about the harm that could potentially be caused.
1: Yeah. And how do you think about like, you know, there are certain certifications that require absence in order to be certified and, With harm reduction up and coming, how do you see those things kind of working out? Like when, you know, when everybody's required to follow a specific pathway, how can we really support multiple pathways to recovery?
2: Mm -hmm. That's another place where it gets really hairy when you're doing peer support is um, supporting multiple pathways can be difficult because um, somebody who's continuing to use, if they want to be in the workforce, they can't. And I really think about agency policies or um, ethical guidelines and how they intersect and how it can be so limiting. And I I started this thinking from working in an abstinence-based program, um, but it, it goes a lot further.
1: But uh, no, I agree with you. I think that, you know, we really are in a time where we're seeing some movement to understanding if not embracing um you know harm reduction and the role that it can play in recovery as well as moderation and individual recovery um which as we've seen you know as you talked about during your presentation that this idea of individual recovery being actually the most common pathway um which people people don't really know about um Mm -hmm. but the role and and as we move more in that direction how do we like break some of the barriers down um that are hindering our ability to understand and implement multiple pathways um, as effectively as we could.
2: I think about like if a person can effectively do do their job, then what they're doing in their free time shouldn't matter to their employer. Having a stipulation for being a peer support as a year in recovery, it's, it's limiting. I don't like it.
1: I agree. I have been uh, talking about that um, with some employers recently. And it's interesting to see. And in the supervisor's community of practice, that was a dialogue that we just had, too. But yeah, tell me more, Chandel, about kind of uh, your thoughts on recovery requirements as it relates to being hired and working as a peer specialist.
2: So I actually advocated for some change in policy in my organization when I was still working directly as a peer. Um, in the policies, it said that you need to have one year sober, and you need to have it. Uh, you need to have a letter from a couple of people in the community that that say, "Yes, I know this person has been sober for a year." And if you use, you will be fired. And I was like that is really harsh language you will be let go. And so we talked about it and I said well well what about problematic use where it's interfering with your work. And so we changed the policy and now it says that you may need to take um leave hmm. if you're having p- problematic use not that you're going to be fired and I think that's that's something to look at too. Um problematic use versus just using in general. So this whole thing about having needing to have one year of recovery to be a peer support and it being a role where you're supporting multiple pathways to recovery it kind of seems like an oxymoron.
1: Yes, it does.
2: <laughs> Especially when you're supporting pat it's it's just multiple pathways to recovery. How I think about different peers and what their strengths are, who they work with. You know, like myself, twelve-step people, or someone who um, went through the prison system, or someone else who does culture. Um, all of those different people supporting different individuals with that they work with. Well, what about the person who's doing moderation management? So. There's, there's this like empty spot in who could support that person.
1: Yeah, it's a gap in services. Exactly. Um, right. When people make that decision to say, I want to continue using, who can they be matched up with? And I think a mm-hmm. lot about um, the youth uh, of today <laughs> who are up and coming and who, you know, from conversation with them, I hear such an aversion to the word recovery and to wanting to be seen as a person in recovery and really instead wanting to just say like, you know, I think my substance use is causing some problems in my life and I just want to address it and then, you know, continue on with my life and not have to take on this identity of a person in recovery who Mm -hmm. has, you know, a disease that has to be managed for the rest of my life. They don't want to do all that. I personally as an individual don't want to do all that. Um, And, but there isn't then if you make the decision to, kind of reject those labels there isn't really anywhere to go um you know i know that uh, from my own experiences i always hear people talk about like oh the recovery community or we're all connected we're all part of this community but i have never been a part of the recovery community because every time i go and even in this position in spaces that coe has hosted i've had people say like oh, anybody who's still using and says they're in recovery is delusional. They don't know what they're talking about. You know, they're not really in recovery. And I'm like, okay, well, if you're saying that, but you're saying we're all part of the same community, then why would you think I would feel welcome here in this space Mm -hmm. that I created, the space that I'm hosting, (laughs) where you're telling me I'm delusional, right? It's like, well, then, you know, how can we possibly say we're a community then? Right. Um, So I think, yeah, I think there's a lot of room for growth here. And we saw that um, throughout the uh, sessions that you did. And something that really stood out to me that I'm really interested to hear your thoughts on, too, is how people leaned into the material. Like when, we, when you talked about how people maybe don't use the word recovery or might say that they're recovered um, mm-hmm. or that they're just living their lives, a lot of people really connected with that. They, we had a lot of people saying like, oh, I didn't know that that was even an option. I didn't know that I could use that language or that that was possible for me to feel that way. Um, what did you think about so many people kind of resonating with that language that you shared?
2: I was really excited for that. Super excited for that because, um, a lot of times I, I see people see that as a bad thing. Hmm. Like, oh, you're not recovered. you're like you were saying, you're delusional. Like you don't it's it's an ongoing process. How can you say that you're past it? So when people were, leaning into that i was like yes a little bit of change is happening here
1: yeah it was really exciting to see
2: definitely gives you hope that that um peer support in general is is moving in a more positive light
1: yeah um was there anything else that stood out from you in those sessions
2: stigma I think stigma impacts all of this really. Um, and the impact that I had when I, when I first said that 12 step language stigmatizes recovery, like, oh my goodness, that was such a, it was a crazy response that I wasn't exactly anticipating because I'm from 12 steps. So I was like, it's okay. They'll, they'll be able to handle it. And, and that response was, I was kind of taken back by and I kind of didn't, I was just like frozen. Like, I don't even know what to say to you right now.
1: Yeah. There were some folks who were uh, less than thrilled (laughs) when you said that. Yeah. Uh, But I think it's an important piece to pull apart, right? This, this idea of how the pathways interact with each other. Like I know um, I did 12 step programming actually for about six months. It's something that I uh, share every once in a while, but that was where I started as well. Um, And I just wasn't for me. I didn't appreciate it. It just wasn't a good fit. And so I felt like I had, uh, in those spaces, been harmed. And so I left and I did smart recovery um, for about a year and found a lot of value in that before moving on. Um, But what I've really found, and I'm curious to hear, you know, maybe how you've navigated through this. When we hear other people talking about our recovery pathway and they say like, hey, this thing caused harm to me or this didn't work for me oftentimes it gets perceived as people saying that whole recovery pathway is bad. And how do you separate those two things from each other and hold both to be true that this recovery pathway worked really well for me and has a lot of meaning and value. And it caused harm to this other person at the same time.
2: Mm -hmm. It, It comes back to the acceptance piece, I guess for me, um, because I have heard people say that 12 steps have harmed them or 12 step recovery has harmed them. And, and at first it's like, well, how it was such a positive experience for me, but I really had to like search within and say, okay, other people can have their own experiences. How can I support that? What they want? This isn't about me. This isn't Chandel's recovery plan. This is, (laughs) the individual I'm working with plan. And that's, that's a huge piece to be had too. And um, recognizing other pathways as valid. I don't, I don't know how I, I, I don't know how you get through that. I guess you just learn that, that it's okay. and Seeing it from day to day, being a positive experience for other people is something that helped me to say, okay, that that's a valid a valid thing
1: yeah what about for the people who don't get to see those examples because i can think of plenty of people who've never met anybody who's practicing moderation successfully um, or or never you know who who still think mat is like horrible
2: (laughs) practice a little bit of faith i guess
1: yeah actually i think that's a great answer Um, right? How do we, we as peer specialists, right, presume competence, we extend trust and compassion and space to the people that we're working with. So trust that this person knows themselves well enough to know the decision that they're making.
2: Mm -hmm. And that's something that I was taught really early on working as a quote unquote professional is that um, the people that we are working with, they know what is best for them. Mm -hmm. So to trust that and to to work with that, rather yeah. than like try to tell them what's best for them.
1: Right. Yeah. We don't know. We're never going to know better than somebody else what's right for them and what works for them. Um, mm-hmm. But I think yeah, really stressing this this idea that you know all of these pathways can be greatly beneficial and and greatly harm harmful. You know, I, I hear. All the time people who are like i hate moderation it didn't work for me it only caused problems And i'm like okay <laughs> that's my recovery pathway but i appreciate that it was so horrible for you <laughs> like both of those things can be true <laughs> um so uh kind of moving into wrapping up i'm really interested to hear you know what you're seeing uh, as harm reduction uh becomes more and more I hate to use the word mainstream because I really don't think that it's there yet, but as we're moving in that direction and seeing harm reduction being elevated, how do you see it impacting, you know, how peer support services are provided?
2: I think in the, in the, I think that because harm reduction, okay, so going back to it being lumped with MAT, um, the fact that you need to have like clinical support, I feel like doesn't. It, it I feel like it influences peer support a little bit, and because we have clinicians who are working with our individuals, telling them what they need to do. Mm-hmm. Clinicians, as in counselors and doctors, so we have multiple people working with the individuals that we're working with too. Um and as far as like cannabis I will say um for instance in Minnesota cannabis just became decriminalized or I'm I'm not even entirely sure what what changed but um I think it's impacting It's impacting people because they're, they're questioning like, okay, well, can I change the current pathway that I'm in? Like, can I, can I smoke some cannabis now? Because it's, it's legal. And the, the first inclination with a lot of people that I'm seeing is, oh no, you have to put it in the same category as alcohol. And if it's harmful for you, then it's probably not a good thing to do. And how can we limit that? for pe- the people that we're working with.
1: Yeah. I think this question of decriminalization and legalization is a really good one um, because that has been, you know, kind of the dividing line for so long is like, well, you, you shouldn't even consider using substances because they're illegal. And now we're seeing, um, you know, marijuana, one of the substances that people you know, have struggled with the most or that, is all alternatively one of the substances that people turn to the most if they're, you know, not going to continue drinking or stopping um, using uh, um, drugs like cocaine or heroin or, uh, quote unquote, harder drugs, you know, they often turn to smoking weed. And uh, now that it's legal in a variety of places across the country, that dialogue is really interesting um, and how it comes together with peer support and multiple pathways of like, well, they aren't breaking the law anymore. They're using a perfectly mm-hmm. legal substance. So are they still in recovery? Uh, and, and the answers, I think, are very, very telling of where we are as a workforce because some folks will be like, yeah, of course. And others are like, absolutely not. To your point, it needs to be categorized just like uh, alcohol. And I think we'll see as the country moves more and more towards legalizing um, weed, you know, how the impact that that has on peer support
2: I think it's a win for peer support, though, because we've talked we talked a little bit about during during our session. Um, one of the case studies that we went through at the end of my session was talking about how do you support someone who wants to use um, cannabis, and um, a lot of what came up was people saying, "Well, it's against the law." Mm-hmm. And, well, now it's not. So there's there's one barrier to that that pathway that's being removed.
1: Yeah, and I think it leads to, hopefully, some individual and collective reflection of, like, you know, well, we've reflexively been saying, well, you can't do that because it's illegal. But now that it's not illegal, what do you actually think about this? What do we actually do about it, right? Instead of just being Mm -hmm. like, well, it's illegal. Um, Yeah, it's, it's, I think, forcing some reflection and some conversation that maybe has been avoided up until now or dodged. Mm Mm-hmm. Well, this has been really interesting, Shantel, and I appreciate you taking the time to chat with me and your presentations. I mean, I feel like people really walked away, like we said, exploring new language, exploring new ways of making meaning of their own lived experiences and being able to take so much back to the work they're doing. Um, Did you have any final thoughts or anything else before we wrap up?
2: My final thought is to support the people that you are working with and to focus on what their goals are. Hmm. I'll always be curious about what they want with their lives.
1: Yeah, I couldn't agree more. Uh, Thank you so much, Shindell. It's been a great Mm -hmm. uh, pleasure chatting with you today.
0: Yeah, you too. Thank you for connecting with us, listeners. Our goal in sharing stories and information is to provide hope and resources to the field of peer recovery. Please join us again next month on Recovery Talk. You can find our episodes on our website, PeerRecoveryNow.org. That's PeerRecoveryNow.org, or wherever you find your podcasts. The Peer Recovery Center of Excellence is funded by the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration to enhance peer recovery support services by expanding access to training and technical assistance services across the country. The views expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect the official policies of the Department of Health and Human Services, nor does mention of trade names, commercial practices, or organizations imply endorsement by the U.S. government. Talk with you next time.